the night before Jesus died, he, uh, he prayed, prayed for his followers, and he prayed specifically not that God would take them out of the world, because he had sent them into the world, but he did pray that the, in the world they would be protected from the evil one, for they are not of this world, he says. And this is where we get those famous, famous lines that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world, that we are called to be in the world, in the culture, in the politics, in the arts, in the sports, in the economy, in the government, in, in the world, in the community of the world, but we're not to be of the world. Famous lines that are famously hard to live out. This is not a new struggle uh, since at least Genesis 4 that we know of. Cain kills his brother Abel and then Cain gets sent off from, from the rest of the believers and he's like this lone unbeliever living out there and, and, but he goes off and starts his own line of godless people who also happen to be really great at building culture. Like Cain builds a city, it says, and then Jubal, one of his sons, ends up becoming the father of all people who play the strings and pipes. <laughs> and then Tubal Cain, later on, it says he was the, the one who forged tools out of bronze and iron. And so you see immediately, right off the bat, there's these godless people who still have the image of God in them. And they create these amazing, like they're builders, inventors, entrepreneurs, artists. And then from that point forward, from Genesis 4 forward, you have this big question. Can the people of God, can those who love God and follow him, walk with God, can they live in that city? Can they listen to that music? Can they use that technology? Can they wear those clothes? Can they eat that? Can they, can they do that? Can they enjoy the things that were created by the godless people, the people who, who created culture apart from God? How do I be in the world but not of the world? That question has persisted since Genesis 4 on. So a couple years back, I I reread Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, which I would highly recommend, but I have to give you like this one warning with it. Um, He asks a lot of questions that are not comfortable to answer. (laughs) So like you get into it and he starts making you uncomfortably aware of how the things you consume, the things you use, the things you buy, the places you live, how all of those things shape us. The city you live in, the technology you use, the the, the art and music you consume, it shapes us. Things we take for granted, suburban homes, cell phones, cheap but oh-so-cool clothes from Target. Those things shape us and shape our whole world. And there are some things, some things that you don't really want to be aware of. Breathing. I breathe just fine until I think about breathing and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to hyperventilate. <laughs> all right? You're all breathing hard right now, aren't you? <laughs> and that's what Andy Crouch does. You read his book and you start hyperventilating. Like all these things that we don't even think about, you start asking questions. Do these things reflect the culture that God wants us to create? Do they reflect the kingdom of God? Should we be using that or not? Is it using us or are we using it how do we be in the world but not of, not of the world? So these, uh, these questions in the Joseph story, they've been just under the surface since, since week one, since Genesis 37. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was making a, a cup of tea, 
And something about the mug I chose and the way I heated it, like it wasn't boiling. And so I, I pull it out and don't really think much of it. Just the mug itself is hot. And then I take my, the tea bag and I drop it in. And suddenly it just like exploded. It's boiling over and it scalds my hand. And, um, and I'm not the cussing guy. Like, uh, sometimes I wish I was. I sound tougher. But like, when, when things like that happen, I'm like, finger dumper jibakiba! And, um, I start making up words. My wife knows when I start making up words that I'm probably in excruciating pain or lying on the floor or something. That was one of those moments. So in Genesis chapter 46, 37, all the way up to here, you get this, it's just heating up, heating up. And in Genesis 46, it's like the thing drops and it just is gonna boil over this question. How do I be in the world, but not of the world? Up to this point, it's no longer just Joseph struggling with, how do I follow God while living in a godless world? But now the entire family of God is going to have to face this. The entire family of God is invited to move down to Egypt to live in this godless kingdom. And just to give you a little context here, the question they're going to ask it's going to directly relate to us, just slightly changes. How can we be the people of God and live in Egypt? Which is the question we should ask, how can we be the people of God and live in America? These questions have been steadily heating up and, and ever since the time when Joseph was plucked, not by his choosing, out of Palestine and out of God's family and dropped headlong into Egypt, into the world, these questions have been asking, like, um, the, the important thing we need to understand before we read any of the rest of what's going to happen is Egypt. Um, when we think of Egypt, we think of things like mummies. Or what, what's something else? Pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> really good baba ganoush. Have you been to Nof Nof Grill? Uh, so, so this is what we think of when we think of Egypt. When they thought of Egypt, though, remember the original audience reading this, they had spent generations as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. This has the image of slavery, of sinfulness, of godlessness, of paganism. Everything about Egypt calls out to them. So, so when we read in Genesis 37 that Joseph is forced to work for an Egyptian official named Potiphar, this has the ring of, if you talk to a, a modern Jew, this would be like talking about someone who is forced to work for a Nazi official. It's really uncomfortable. So, so the moment this godly young man gets placed into godless Egypt, it's going to be really, really uncomfortable. And the question throughout the text is this. Joseph, you're in the middle of this godless world. Nobody's there to support you. You're, you're, everyone thinks you're dead. You're removed from your faith. Are you going to walk away from your God? Or are you, are you going to give up on the promises of God? Or are you going to cling to it? And here's the thing. With Joseph, throughout we've seen, the answer is No. Joseph is a perfect role model. And if there's one problem with Joseph at this point, it's he's too perfect. Like he's the 20-something young stud who's like getting hit on by Potiphar's wife. And he's like, no, not me. Like, what? And then, then he's, he's persecuted for righteousness sake and he bears it with like patience and he blesses those who curse him. And up to this point, like you can hardly relate to him. You're like, and, and the worst part is he's really good looking too. You just hate the guy. You're like, wow. But then chapter 41, 42, things change a little. He gets in this position of authority and we see in the text after 13 years and slavery and 
uh, prison, he gets in a position of authority. He gets the money, he gets the chariot, he gets the ring, he gets the hot wife, he gets his own little piece of the kingdom. And when this happens, those lines of, can you be a godly man in a godless world, those lines start getting blurry. So if you read through Genesis 41 and 42, which we covered a few weeks ago, and you start pulling out these themes, you'll see he dresses like an Egyptian, he shaves like an Egyptian, he wears Egyptian jewelry, he speaks Egyptian, he eats Egyptian food, he drives an Egyptian chariot, he marries an Egyptian woman, he takes a major position in the Egyptian government, he personally represents Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt, he wholeheartedly serves the Egyptian kingdom. That when we see him in those chapters, he is indistinguishable from Egyptians. Like his brothers see him, but they don't see him. They can't even recognize him because he's so Egyptianized. Now let me be clear. If you read through those texts, nowhere in that text will it say, and Joseph shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have dressed like that. He shouldn't have worn that. He shouldn't have married that. Even even marriage, which explicitly, in other places, it explicitly says God's people should not marry outside of the faith. He does it, and the text nowhere says that's wrong. It just says that's what he did. And you get to think, you know, maybe Joseph didn't even have a choice in the matter. But before we run off and say, see, this is what you should be. You should be like Joseph. You should look and act and talk and work just like the world. As long as God is in your heart, it doesn't matter. Like before we say that, there's this passage in Genesis chapter 20, or 47 that we see today that I just want to point out before we dig into the meat of the text. And here's the scene. The famine, remember there's a famine, seven-year famine coming. The famine gets so bad that the people come to him and they're like, we are out of money and we're going to starve to death. Will you please give us some food? And so what does Joseph say? He says, you know, I've got an idea. You're out of money, but you still have livestock. Give me your livestock, I'll give you food. And they're like, okay, great. Here's our livestock. So they, so they now have no way of making money anymore, right? They have no, no livestock, no livelihood, nothing to grow. So, so they give that away, and then the famine keeps going and going. So what does Joseph do? He, they, the people come back to him and say, Joseph, we have no money. We have no livestock. We have nothing but ourselves and our land. Please give us food. And what does Joseph say? You know, you got land still. I'll take that land. And then we read in Genesis chapter 47, verses 20 through 21. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. So... Let me remind you, the original audience had spent generations as slaves under Pharaoh. They knew exactly what it meant to be reduced to servitude under Pharaoh. So we have Joseph, the man of God. God is, he loves God in the heart of his hearts. He is serving Pharaoh. And he's so successful at serving Pharaoh that he empowers Pharaoh to build a kingdom of injustice and exploitation. Something about that doesn't feel right. If you are wholeheartedly serving a broken system, there's a very real danger that you might succeed. If you are wholeheartedly serving an economic system that is broken, be careful, you might succeed. If you are wholeheartedly serving a political party, be careful, you might succeed. 
So this is Joseph. Joseph is doing this subtle dance between being faithful to God and faithful to Pharaoh, being the favorite son of Israel and the favorite son of Egypt. He's trying to be both all this time. He's being in the world, but not of the world. And he's doing this dance. And at this point in the text, it gets really, really messy. And this leads us to the main thing, though. The main thing is that the issue, Joseph has been asking this question the whole time, but we're not going to see it boil up until it gets to the whole family of God. And so in chapters 46 and 47, the spotlight's going to turn from Joseph to Jacob and the brothers, to the father and the sons of Israel, the entire family of God. Joseph invites them all down to Egypt. And just to be clear, again, Egypt is a different place. It's not like your brother inviting you over to, hey, you want to come move to New Jersey? This is, this is a massive question of faith. Remember, the whole reason God's people are in Palestine at this point is because Abraham, the father of faith, heard the call of God to go to the land I will show you, and he showed up. He did it. That where they live is part essential to their faith at this time. So the idea of just picking up, leaving where God had called them to go to Egypt, this is a massive question. Like, if we go to Egypt, will we lose our faith? If we go to Egypt... Will God still be with us? Like, can we still be the people of God and be in Egypt? That is fundamentally the question of Genesis chapter 46 and 47. And let me, um, in this text, we're going to see four principles. And, and this is, um, I love this because these are four principles that I never would have made up on my own. And that's when you know there's something to it. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't usually do. I want you to choose one. I don't want you to choose four. I want you to choose one. Say, this is mine. And at the end of the message, I'm going to specifically ask you to stand when I read your one. And we're going to pray over you that you would live out this one, that you'd be in the world but not of the world. And let me tell you, one of these four, I'm sure God's going to be speaking to your heart. But I wanted to say that ahead of time because if I do it at the end and you don't stand, it's just going to be awkward. (laughs) All right. You good? good? We good? All right, let's jump into the text. Genesis 46 is our text. Genesis 46, starting in verse 1, it reads like this. So Israel set out with all that was his, and um, when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So he, he's, he's up further north. He goes to Beersheba, which is like the last settlement, and then you just hit desert and then Egypt, all right? He gets to the last place. I'm still in the promised land, and I'm going to offer up this sacrifice. Like, God, what am I doing right now? Like, am I completely leaving the faith by moving here. And it says in verse 2, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Don't be afraid. This plan is not yours. It's mine. I will go down to Egypt with you. I will surely bring you back, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Like, I'm going to go with you. This is not the end of my promise. This is not the end of being my people. This is the beginning. And this brings us to the first point. Like, how do we be in the world but not of the world? And we see right in the text here that we are to put away our fear and live out our calling from God. That we're to put away our fear and to live out our calling from God. If you notice in the text, this is God's calling. 
This is God's plan. This is not Jacob's plan. Jacob might think this is his plan, but from Genesis 15, God's been talking about this way before Jacob was ever born. That God has a plan for Jacob, and it's to go into the world, but not to be of the world. Jacob is not just deciding to move to Egypt. God is sending him. This is his calling. So, just to back up here for a second, if you are a Christian, God has sent you into the world. You are called into the world. Your job is not a job, it's a vocation, it's a calling. Your family is not just a family, your spouse is not just a spouse. You are called to sacrificially love that person. Your home is not just a home, it is your mission base. Your neighborhood is your mission, your community is your mission. If you are a Christian, you are sent by God into the world. Every aspect of your life, Christ claims that. You are Christ's ambassador. You are God's missionary. You are the hands and feet of Christ. It's everywhere, littered in the New Testament. Now, can I just say, if you don't feel like you're called by God, if you don't feel like, oh, but my job's just a job, or I just moved here because it was convenient, or I just married this person, and I don't even know what I was thinking now. If that's where you're at, let me, let's read your Bible. Your life isn't about your plans. God had a plan Before you were born. We are created in God's workmanship. To do the work that he prepared in advance for us to do. It's been his plan all along. Every detail of your life. Your job, your house, your marriage, everything. These are not accidental. You are called to live out God's calling in these things. And I want you to get this though. The ancient Israelites, Jacob and the boys, they're struggling to believe. Can God really function? Do do his promises and presence, do they really function in Egypt? Egypt is evil. They don't even know who God is. Can God really work there? And we struggle over here. Have you been to my workplace? God's not there. Have you seen my neighborhood? Have you seen our schools? Have you seen whatever? Like, it's totally secular. God is not part of that. This, I separate God from God. Uh, We go there and we meet God there, but then he's not in Egypt. He's not in my job. He's not in my workplace. He's not in my neighborhood. And here's the thing. You need to put away fear and live out your calling. He promises, I am with you. So, so Jacob hears this. He hears this and he says, okay, I'm going to follow God and I, and I receive this promise that God is going to come with me. So he takes his whole family down to Egypt. And if you, if, if you have the text open, Genesis chapter 46, 8 through 17, is you just list all the descendants. It's a long genealogy. And I'm not going to belabor this, although I could. This text is awesome, by the way. You should study it in your spare time and you should start counting. You should start counting. The whole thing is like this intricate, interwoven list of sevens and the whole thing. But no time for that. Okay, so, so they go through this genealogy. All 70 people in the family go down to Egypt. And then the whole family heads down to Egypt. J- Jacob and Joseph are reunited. And we see this intimate scene between father and son finally reunited. And it says, as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. And just the family is being reunited. God's redeeming work is taking place. That grace has changed them. That though they were broken, they're now becoming whole again. And then with that, Joseph turns to his family and said, hey, there's this one thing you need to know. 
Um, Egyptians hate, and I mean hate, shepherds. So if anyone asks you what you do, if Pharaoh asks you what you do, you tell them, we're cattlemen, we're cowboys. Everybody likes a cowboy, right? Tell them you're a cowboy. And that's, you know, it's, it's not strict in the truth. They had some cattle too. So, so just three verses later, they're standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to the brothers, so what's your occupation? And they're like, yeah, we're shepherds. We're shepherds. And you're just like sitting there thinking, no, he said, don't tell them the sh- S word. You're cowboys. Come on. What, what just happened here? Like, did you not hear? Your brother just told you, you need to lie to Pharaoh. This is what you need to do. And it's, it's not even a real lie. It's a white lie, right? Because they had some cattle. They could kind of call themselves cowboys. But the text is going to make a point of this. They refused to lie. They are standing before the most powerful man in the world, and they have everything to gain from lying, everything to lose from not lying, and they refuse to lie. Now, this might not be a big deal if you didn't read the rest of Genesis and realize that they have a long-standing family tradition of lying to kings. (laughs) So, Genesis chapter 12, granddad did it. Uh, So he's like, so is that your wife? She's really pretty. He's like, my wife? No, she's my sister. Uh, Isaac did it. Genesis chapter 26. He meets this king named Abimelech and he's like, you think she's pretty? She's pretty. Yeah, she's my sister. Like they just, yeah, these brothers will not do it. God's either with us or he's not. They will not win Pharaoh's favor under some false pretense. They won't lie about who they really are. They will not conceal. And this is the next principle we see. The next principle we see, how do you live in the world but not be of the world? And we see right of this text, be bold. Refuse to hide who you really are. They refuse to conceal. No, this is who we really are. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. Pharaoh now knows the truth. It's terrible. Oh, no, he knows the truth. What's he going to do? You read the next line. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and brothers have come to you, and the land before, uh, of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. If you know any of them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Like, here, take the best of the land. Lead my livestock. Like, it totally doesn't, nothing happens. Why? Because God is with them. We live in a world where a lot of powerful people hate, and I mean hate, evangelical Christians. It's a lot like being a shepherd in Egypt. So understandably, a lot of Christians have this fear that they might be found out. Like, if people know that I go to church and read my Bible and trust Jesus, like, it's just going to get weird. People are going to go all like Bernie Sanders on me and try and fire me or something. And there's something to this. There is sometimes getting honest, being honest is going to get you thrown into the fiery furnace. It's going to get you tossed into the lion's den. It's going to get you fired. Sometimes it will. And, and, I, and if you're sitting there thinking, but Paul, if, if I don't hide the fact, if I'm bold, if I refuse to hide who I really am, if I tell everybody that I've got like an invisible friend named Jesus who tells me what to do, they're all just going to be, it's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. And I'm like, I know. I'm a pastor. Think about it. So like uh, uh, last year we were at this uh, party and it was great. All these neighbors there and and we're sitting there, and I'm having this great conversation, chumming it up with them. And then, uh, and then, 
inevitably the question comes up, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh no, this is going so well. And I kind of answer it like it's a question like, I'm a pastor? <laughs> and then it just, it just, this is what happens. All the lapsed Catholics, they start calling me father and wanting to confess. And all the Baptists, they take their beer and they're like, and, and then all, all the unchurched people, they think I'm like wearing some like suicide vest or something ready to blow myself up. Like, it's terrible. I know. It's weird. So I'm not saying you like need to go everywhere and be like, hey, I'm a Christian. I have an invisible friend named Jesus. You should meet him. Like, I'm not saying that we have to be wise, but I am saying that intentionally concealing who we really are, it doesn't pass the sniff test. If you're ashamed of your father before men, he will be ashamed of you. Be bold. Refuse to hide who you really are. If you are hiding at work, if you're hiding among your friends, if you are hiding in your neighborhood, this might be your point. Maybe the Spirit's pointing to you and say, you need to be bold. You need to stop hiding. So after this, we just have this scene where the brothers just take off the cover. They conceal everything. And then, and then Jacob, we get this beautiful scene where the old man Jacob is going to meet Pharaoh. And this, I love this scene because these are two like great personalities, like fill the room, larger than life personalities, meeting face to face for the first time. Pharaoh on the one hand, he's the most powerful man in the world. He is the prince of the world. He has all the wealth and power and women and soldiers and people literally worship him. Like, it's insane. And Jacob is an old man. And he just doesn't care about any of that. We see this. Chapter 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This is awesome. So uh, let let me quote Hebrews 7, 7 here. Without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser is blessed by the greater. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. The lesser is blessed by the greater. So Jacob walks into this room. He walks into this man who, who is considered a god. He walks into his palace, into his kingdom. And Jacob's like, I'm going to bless you. Pharaoh may have all the money, the wives, the soldiers, the palaces, all of this, but Jacob knows that he has something Pharaoh does not have. Jacob has the promises of God. So by all outward appearances, Jacob looks like a starving, helpless old man who needs Pharaoh to bless him. But Jacob doesn't see it that way. Jacob looks at him and Jacob knows the promises of God. Jacob knows that God has promised that through his son, the whole world will be blessed. Jacob believes the promises. And by faith, Jacob is the most powerful man in that room that day, period. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. How do we be in the world and not of the world? Oh, man, I love this. Be the first to bless. Be the first to bless. If you want to be powerful, like biblically, the 
the idea of what God thinks of a great, powerful person, you have to be the first to bless. If you want to be in the world, but not overwhelmed or overawed by the power, the money, the, the fame, the worship of the world, if you don't want to be affected by that stuff, if you want to be more powerful than the most powerful person in the world, then you don't sit around waiting for the world to bless you. You don't sit around waiting for the world to, to, to affirm you. You go out there. You know who you are because you have the promises of God and you bless the world. You might not feel qualified to bless others, but can I say this? First John 4, 4. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in this world. Be the first to bless. When you focus on how God has blessed you so that you can bless others, the world loses its grip. It loses its power over you. If you know that you're blessed by God, then there's nothing, there's nothing this world can give to you or take from you. If you know that all of your blessings come from God, there's nothing this world can take from you or give to you. So, so Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul, he, he just got a beating. His mission just got shut down in, in Philippi. He got a beating, he's bleeding, he's chained up next to his friend Silas. They're in prison, they're sitting there, and it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns. He said, what are you doing, Paul? Like, what are you doing? Don't you realize your mission just failed? Everything's coming to an end right now. And he's like, but I've learned the secret of being content in all things. He said, what, what's going on, Paul? What are you talking about? Your mission's over. The world is winning. They're more powerful than you. They can chain you up. They can throw you in prison. And he says, but I am Christ, free man. But Paul, you don't get it. You've lost and they might kill you. They might take everything from you. And he says, ah, but to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the walls begin to shake and the chains fall off and the door swings open. And the man who oversaw his beating, the prison warden, the prison guard, comes in and he falls on his knees before him and he begs him, what must I do to be safe? Like, how do I get what you have? I need you to bless me. I need you to bless me. That's power. Christians, do you know the power you have? Do you know whose child you are? Do you know the promises that God has made to you? You do not have to go to this world begging for their blessing. You are empowered by the God of the universe. You are Christ ambassadors. You go. Be the first to bless. Verse 29. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, if, you found, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise. Okay, I thought we should stop right here. <laughs> this sounds a little awkward. Um, before we report Jacob to the police, let's unpack this for a bit. So like if you go in today and you go and um, you've got to testify in court, what do you do? You put your hand on a Bible and then they ask you, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? That right there is based on an ancient oath formula. It's at least 5,000 years old, right? 
You're swearing on the Bible. And when you do that, that means the word of God, all the blessings and curses of the word of God, you're calling those upon yourself. If I lie, may I be cursed the way it talks about this deity curses things. Like, we don't explicitly say that. I think we should in our court of law. And if I don't, may all the curses of God fall upon me. You know, uh, in, in the ancient times, they literally would enact this. They would cut an animal in two and walk through it. It's called the walk of death. You see this in the book of Genesis chapter 15. Abraham does that. That's to display if, if this falls through. Actually, God does that before, before Abraham. God's saying... May the curses fall on me. It's by my own word. This is what people would do. They would say, may I be split in half like an animal. May God's curses pour upon me if I don't do this. And we still have this in our language. If you hear someone asking God to damn something, that is ancient curse language, and it is horrific. Don't use it. Don't use it. So, in that, They would put their hand on a Bible representing God's word, God's promises. Now, in Jacob's day, did they have a Bible? Not exactly. They had the word of God, though, right? So God spoke directly to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were a walking Bible. They were the Bible. And when God made his promises, what did he promise to them? He says, through your seed, through your loins, will come one who's going to save the world, bless the world. Jesus is coming through you. So believe this word. So they they took that very, very literally. Like God's promise is going to come through my loins. So when you're going to swear an oath, I'm not making this up. When you're going to swear an oath, you need to put your hand on the Bible. (laughs) Um, So they put their hand on the place of God's blessing and his promise. Aren't you glad we have Bibles today? (laughs) <laughs> considerably fewer oaths would be taken, though, if that were still the case. So they make the, 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 do this. He says, put your hand under your thigh and promise. Promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Like I might be called to live in Egypt, and I might have the best of the best that Egypt can offer, and I might have my whole family with me, but Egypt will never be home. Jacob wants to be buried in the promised land. He will sojourn in Egypt, but he will not settle there. He will never settle on Egypt because this world is not his home. He's looking for a home that's yet to come. He longs for a better country. Even though he would not receive the very promises of God, he saw them from a distance and he welcomed them. He knew that he was just a foreigner and a stranger in this world. That no matter how great they might treat him in Egypt, Egypt would never be home. So how do we be in the world but not of the world? Don't settle for what this world offers. We must never stop longing for a better country. A couple weeks ago, I woke up and I had terrible shoulder pain. 
And I was thinking about it. Like when I was in my teens and 20s, every time I had pain like that, I had some awesome story that went along with it. So like, uh, like it was like, what, how did you get that? And I'm like, oh, I was sliding down a waterfall and bashed my head. Or I was getting chased by a bull and I jumped off a cliff. And the, the real stories. Like these things actually happened. It was awesome. And, and now you're like, so your shoulder got hurt. What happened? And I'm like, I slept. <laughs> like, and then, no, I just slept. Like, I'm getting old. And as terrible as it is to get old, there's something really helpful about this. It's a reminder. This world is not my home. There's something better. Everything, 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 even my body needs to be renewed, redeemed, recreated. To put my hope in anything, even my body, anything other than the promises of God is to put my hope in something that's wasting away. No matter how great this world might be, it will never be my home. We are a people who refuse to settle. We are resident aliens. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are looking for a home that is yet to come. We long for a better country. That is who we are. We long for a world where there is no more conflict between Christ and culture, where art and politics and home life and and the cars we drive and the things we consume and worship is one and the same. It all fits together. There's a word for that in Hebrew. It's called shalom. We long for a world where sin and death and fear are no more, where injustice and exploitation are off the table. We long for a world where the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have come fully to pass. That Jesus is king over all, over all, especially my heart. How do we be in the world but not of the world? So the, the four points again... I want to put away fear and live out my calling for God. I want to be bold. I want to be the first to bless. I refuse to settle. Which one are you going to own? I'm going to go through these again, and I'm going to ask you, as I read them, I want you to think right now, God, which one do you want me to work on this week? Which one? And I want you to stand as, as, and claim yours. Like, make this an opportunity for you to claim it. God, this is what I'm going to choose this week. I'm going to be the first to bless. Or, God, I'm going to be bold. I'm not going to hide anymore. Which one? Is God calling you to? So the first one is this. I want to put away fear and live out my calling. I want to live out my calling at work, in home, in my neighborhood. Christ has sent me into this world to be his ambassador. I want to step into my calling. If that's where you feel, God, I want to step into my calling, stand up now. This is yours. Own it. Yeah. Number two, I want to be bold. I don't want to hide who I really am. I am a son of God. I'm a Christ follower. I want my light to shine before men. This is mine. And by God's grace, I'm going to be bold this week. If that is yours, please stand. Number three, I want to be the first to bless. Like, I don't want to wait around for the world to bless me. I'm not looking for their approval. God has blessed me. I am called to be the first to bless. I'm going to go out, and the people I meet this week, I'm going to bless them. If that's yours, if that's mine, please stand. And the last, I refuse to settle. No matter how nice this world may seem, I declare today it will never be my home. I'm longing for a better country. I'm committing today to live as a stranger. I might live here, but this is not my home. If this is yours, let's stand.
God, we give this to you. We, we, we declare these, that we want these truths to be about us, God. We want to be the people that you've called us to be because we, 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 we receive your promise that your presence is here, that, that there is no place where you're not. God, we want you in our work and we want you in our homes and we want you in our neighborhood and our community and our art and the things we consume and the things we buy. God, we want you everywhere. That we want to be in this world because this is your world and you want to redeem it. You want to recreate it. But God, we don't want to be of the world. We want to be of your kingdom. God, for everyone who's standing here today, Lord, I pray that you would empower them. That you would give them the sight to see what you've set before them, God. That you would let them hear the promise that you spoke to Jacob. I will be with you. And God, we give this to you in, in your son's name. Amen. Amen.